Hello world, I'm Tomasino. This is Solarpunk Prompts, a series for writers where we discuss solarpunk, a movement that imagines a world where technology is used for the good of the planet. In this series, we spend each episode exploring a single solarpunk story prompt, adding some commentary, some inspirations, and some considerations. Most importantly, we consider how that story might help us to better envision a sustainable civilization. If this is your first time here, I'd recommend checking out our introduction episode first, where we talk about what solarpunk is, why you should care, and why the series came into being. Without further ado, our prompt today is The Henchmen. A group of mercenaries, bodyguards, and defense contractors are hired by a billionaire to protect him in his remote stronghold after the great market collapse. Their boss eventually grew bored and ordered them to harass people from neighboring villages barely making ends meet. He didn't expect the bodyguards to turn on him. Now, after their boss has had an unfortunate accident, these security personnel with no experience in community building or even with the local language are trying to open up the stronghold and join their distrusting neighbors. Our prompt today is all about breaking expectations. How would a post-apocalyptic stronghold work? What sort of people work security for a loner billionaire? How could a bunch of mercenaries turn into community building? In typical post-apocalyptic narratives, we face the same challenge. Things are terrible and made worse by people. How do we get away or insulate ourselves from that awfulness? The idea of humanity turning on itself is at its most extreme in the guise of zombies, where all has been reduced to mindless hordes of selfishly hungry who want what you have, even if it's just your flesh. That is a powerful narrative, and it's driven so much cultural art that it's become second nature to envision our future reality in that dim light. But is it realistic? Can we really expect the worst to come from our communities? When a disaster strikes, like the flooding in Houston after Hurricane Harvey, for example, you see everyday people pouring out all this generosity and solidarity, says Christian Parenti, Associate Professor of Economics at John Jay College in New York City. Suddenly, the idea that everything should have a price on it, and the idea that selfishness and competition are good, all that just gets parked. Suddenly... Everyone is celebrating cooperation, solidarity, bravery, sacrifice, and generosity. And that's not a unique reaction in the face of hardship, nor is it new. Our shared history is filled with stories of calamity, and just as many stories of community standing together and facing it as a group. If anything, our methods have improved over the generations. We're not simply picking up the pieces, we're building new things, better things. A clear illustration of how grassroots disaster relief can lead to larger initiatives comes out of Puerto Rico post-Hurricane Maria, where what started in the town of Caguas, I'm sure I butchered that name, as a volunteer-run community kitchen soon transformed into an island-wide network of community centers, known as mutual aid centers. Today, these centers provide more than just meals. They offer all sorts of services related to art, education, and therapy, even acupuncture. Stories like this about disaster collectivism are plentiful. If you'd like to hear many, many more, check out The Response, 
a documentary and podcast series exploring how communities respond to crises, both in their immediate aftermath and over a period of months and years. You'll find a link in the notes. For our story, the question becomes, how do we buck these trends and write something that captures this idea, disaster collectivism, and makes it engaging and exciting, while also reaffirming the notion that this is the realistic future, not Mad Max? Where do we start? Well, just like the prompt itself, I'd recommend we start with that false assumption. Take our billionaire, for instance. What was he planning? How did he think this was going to work? He hired armed men to protect him. How was he expecting to stay in charge when money stopped existing, when they were no longer being paid? Now let's not kid ourselves here. He must have thought about it. He must have had a plan of some sort, because the billionaires running around today planning their own asylums and hideaway bunkers are thinking about it. Oh yes, that's a very real thing, and it's a booming industry. Prepper communities have bulk bunkers around the world, and many individual billionaires have plans within plans for their final escapes. When the humanist Douglas Rushkoff was whisked off to the desert to meet a mysterious cabal of ultra-wealthy stakeholders, this was one of their talking points with him. Some billionaires considered using special combination locks on the food supply that only they knew, or making guards wear disciplinary collars of some kind in return for their survival, or maybe building robots to serve as guards and workers if that technology could be developed in time. Our story billionaire surely had thoughts along the same lines. When he met his untimely end, did that release the stockpiles to his henchmen, or is it locked away behind an impenetrable door, wasted? For the start of the story, we must think for a moment not as the solar punk futurist, but as the power-mad capitalist. After his meeting with the billionaire preppers, Ruskoff described them as taking their cue from Tesla founder Elon Musk colonizing Mars, Palantir's Peter Thiel reversing the aging process, or artificial intelligence developers Sam Altman and Ray Kurzweil uploading their minds into supercomputers. They were preparing for a digital future that had less to do with making the world a better place than it did with transcending the human condition altogether. To them, winning means earning enough money to insulate themselves from the damage they are creating by earning money in that way. Once we've spent an uncomfortable moment inside that existential despair, we can return again to our more probable future. By setting up the story with that false premise, we have sown expectation into the reader, who now awaits the riots of the people, or the betrayal of a minion who will then take the place of a warlord. Instead, the rug is pulled. And in that confusion, anything is possible, both for our henchmen and for our reader. Here are people who didn't know how to communicate well, let alone form communities. They're in charge now, right? The boss is gone. They have the guns, but, but that's not right. It's not what they want. They see a community struggling and they want to help, because that's what humans do in a crisis. That's how we react, for real. So now they have choices to make. They're going to open their doors and share with these people for a start, and maybe in that process they'll slowly learn to trust one another rather than be traumatized. It's a story of two communities merging. 
Violence is not the answer. It won't bring them more food or water without taking it from someone else. It's through community and collaboration that they'll grow. Now let's recall, the prompt says the great market collapse, not the great civilizational collapse. The world is in chaos, seeing the death of capitalism. But the people are alive, just confused and afraid. The villages around the stronghold may not want to venture into big cities, fearing riots and political upheaval, but farms still function. People live their day-to-day -day lives. Consider where this story might take place as well. It's a spot on the map somewhere. Is it somewhere in Southeast Asia, perhaps, where a lot of billionaires have decided to build their bunkers? Who lives in these villages? Do the children tend to stay when they grow older, or flee to the big city as soon as they can? If so, have they come back since the market collapse, trying to find a new place in the world with skills intended for a different time? Each community has their own problems independent of the stronghold. The villages may not speak the henchmen's language, but maybe their kids do. Maybe one who returned home with more exposure to the world, even. Is there a de facto mediator or a group of them among the children? The tension is there from the start. By the time the billionaire is out of the picture, bodyguards may have already earned a bad reputation with the locals. How can the villagers, who are not stupid, trust their new neighbors? Character and community growth are the theme, and growth stories are wonderful for their trials and failures. In a sense, even our opening bluff is one of these, where the billionaire is faced with a trial, and his failure to grow is what empowers our henchmen. It could be an interesting perspective choice as well. A story could begin from the point of view of that wealthy prepper, and really sell the idea of what story this will be, right up until his bitter end. Oh, that didn't work, is a wonderful thing to have your readers say as they move into chapter two. Maybe that trend could continue throughout. Maybe our henchmen will need to fail a few times themselves before they get the lesson. Disaster collectivism is a noble pursuit, and one which seems to come naturally to communities in trouble, but it isn't a painless process, and each step along the way may not go as planned. The struggles and growth of your characters and community are what makes it engaging and exciting, and will reaffirm the notion that this, this right here, is our realistic future. And that's what Solarpunk is all about. Until next time, I'm Tomasino. I'll hope you'll join me for the next Solar Punk prompt. Music in this recording is Taiyo Hiko by Yago Omoikane from Global Patterns Compilation Solar Punk, A Brighter Perspective. <laughs>